Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to a segment we call Corona Calls. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. I want to start with a paper that, that came out uh, shortly after this segment last week in the journal Cell that uh, made a very big splash in the circles of people who are concerned about long covid the title, which we'll put in the show notes, is Serotonin Reduction in Post-Acute Sequelae of Viral Infection. Um, and the, the main takeaway, as I understood it, is that the authors uh, are advancing, based on their study of people with long COVID symptoms, what seems to be one of the most plausible biological mechanisms for explaining what is making people sick, and that is that the body's reaction to the virus is inhibiting its ability uh, to take up and to store serotonin. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right, so I should probably slam on the brakes here uh, and ask <laughs> you if I'm paraphrasing it accurately and, and what the import is. You are paraphrasing it accurately. It's serotonin, and it's an interesting and important paper. I'm glad you brought it up. The, it's not a large study. Uh, it looked at people with long COVID, and not all of them, but many of the people in the study had lower levels of serotonin when measured in their bloodstream. And the authors looked into this further and discovered that there was evidence of parts of the virus, parts of SARS-CoV-2, that they could find in the gastrointestinal tract. And we know that serotonin is a chemical that requires the absorption of certain amino acids. And they postulated that perhaps what they're seeing in some people with long COVID is a low level of serotonin because of the problem with absorption of, of some of these amino acids that are the building blocks for that. And serotonin itself is, is a terribly important mediator of communication between cells in the brain and the nervous system in general. So the hypothesis built upon this observation is that perhaps some people with long COVID have their symptoms like brain fog, for example. They have these symptoms because of a lack of serotonin in their brain. Now, you notice I've drawn some connections between things that are purely hypothetical at this point, but terribly interesting and terribly important because it may be a window into explaining some of the symptoms that people get from long COVID. It's not going to be a sufficient explanation for everybody, but no one thinks that long COVID is just due to one thing. So what's interesting about this hypothesis is that it's going to lead to trials of using medications that we have and have had for a long time um, that mediate serotonin, how the brain uses serotonin. And for example, one of those drugs is Prozac. And if 
if the serotonin hypothesis is correct, perhaps this drug would be, this or similar drugs to Prozac would be useful in people with some of the symptoms of long COVID, like, like brain fog. So that would, that would interrupt the mechanism. Uh, what you're describing is taking a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. That's what the acronym SSRI represents to kind of uh, counteract any diminution in the body's levels of serotonin. What about like the actual mechanism that's impairing serotonin absorption in the first place? Is that a, a potential point of intervention? It's a potential point of intervention. There's no off-the-shelf drug that I'm aware of that would do that. Um, but certainly, that would be another area that we would look at to see if they could, we could increase the blood levels of serotonin and therefore increase the brain levels that way. So, you know, it's just another, not wide open door, but it's a crack in that door now. And we've had several papers, you and I have talked about several papers over the last six months or so that suggest different mechanisms for long COVID. We're getting closer and closer, but still a distance from understanding the different causes of long COVID. And once we understand the causes, then we can understand, then we can create the interventions. A big question I was left with from this paper is, is this a problem specific to COVID or is like reduced serotonin levels something, you know, that's observed in the aftermath of other infectious diseases? To be continued on that, I, I'm not aware of, of data with other um, syndromes that occur after a viral or bacterial infection. <clears throat> but you're you're asking a very important question, and that is we've known for a long time that following certain viral infections and following certain bacterial infections, we see people with signs and symptoms very similar to long COVID. And of course, there's the entity of myalgic encephalopathy or, or um, chronic fatigue syndrome that it used to be called. Um, perhaps that's tied to the same phenomenon. So there's a whole panoply of clinical conditions that occur after an insult to the body in certain people. And hopefully there's commonality here because that would be wonderful. All right, at this point, we'll open up the phone lines. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg. He is here to answer your questions about COVID and other infectious diseases. The phone number 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for your corona calls. Uh, Dr. Schwartzberg, while the phone lines fill up, I wanted to ask you about uh, one other piece of data to hit the public in the past week, which is that the CDC uh, released a lot of information on uh, case control trials of Paxlovid uh, with a look to how effective getting Paxlovid while you were acutely sick uh, prevented you from getting long COVID. Uh, some of our listeners will recall that a very large study based on Veterans Administration data suggested that Paxlovid might reduce the incidence of long COVID as that study was defining it by about 26%. But the, uh, the population being studied when you're talking about Veterans Administration data is older and unhealthier than the population writ large. Uh, the CDC came back with a verdict of Paxlovid definitely helps reduce long COVID in people 
over 50. Doesn't seem to do anything for adults under 50 when it comes to long COVID. Still reduces the uh, acuity of the disease and may increase the risk of long COVID for adolescents age 12 to 17. How, how to make sense of that spread of data? I struggled with that in terms of making sense out of it. I understood completely, or at least felt that the data for people 50 and over that Paxlova did help reduce the chances of long COVID. We know that one of the risks for long COVID is age. The older you are when you get COVID, the more likely you are to have long COVID. So that was not really surprising and consistent with the previous study that you had mentioned, the 25% plus reduction in long COVID. I also wasn't surprised that people younger than 50 didn't really see much benefit, again, because long COVID is less common in that group, um, and it would be more difficult for a study like the one that the CDC did to demonstrate efficacy. So that didn't really shake my foundation at all. The, the data on adolescents, now there wasn't an, a lot of data and, and long COVID is much less common in adolescents than in older adults. So th that data didn't make sense to me either and I don't really understand it. Um, this is just one of the many things in my bucket of things that about COVID that just aren't, I don't understand at this point. So clearly what we need is more data on this. We need more studies to look carefully at the role of Paxlovid but, you know, I think that it's also telling us something about Paxlovid in general. Um, it does work. It does decrease viral replication. Um, how important that is for otherwise young, healthy people is a big question mark, uh, how necessary it is. Um, I see no reason in withholding it to younger people, but it's hard to argue that they must take this medication. On the other hand, older people... The benefit is clearly there in terms of the acute course of, of COVID. So bottom line, Brian, like you, I don't understand the adolescent issue. I can rationalize the younger adult issue, um, and I understand the older adult issue. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, let's go to the phone lines. First up, we have Carolyn, who is in Oakland. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Um, I'm a pretty regular listener and would like to describe my recent experience with COVID. Um, haven't heard anything in my recollection of listening to you and the doctor. I had my vaccination on November, I mean, sorry, September 24th, and five days later tested positive. Must have had an exposure in there, don't know what it was, but I started Paxlovid immediately, which I had on hand for another reason. Um, day six, I was negative, and then I tested negative for eight days. I was expecting out-of-town guests right around the end of that time and was going to call that off if I had a recurrence, which I did not, as I knew. Friends came uh, after eight negative days, and we were together for four days, and I kind of developed a cough and then tested positive, and then tested positive for seven more days. Today is my first negative day. <laughs> and so wow. my question, other than whatever you can offer about that, is from everything I've read, you don't have a rebound case if you're negative for eight days, but maybe you have different views of that. And, you know, what is the outer limit of a of a rebound case? 
And if you can, any comments you might have had about whether or to what extent I would have been shedding virus um, in Carolyn, my in uh, last I presume, days. I presume all your tests were on, on home rapid test kits? They were. All your negatives? They were, all, okay. well, they were all well in date. All my negatives and all my positives were home RATs. Um, all yeah. well in date. And, you know, I'm, I've used them a lot. I, I don't think I misused them. I can't uh, exclude the possibility that one or more of them yielded an inconsistent result. But, I mean, sure. I, eight, eight, sure. eight let, days. Let, let's put your question to Dr. Swartzberg. Uh, Dr. Swartzberg, thoughts on Carolyn's situation? Well, well, the first thought is I'm glad you're well, Carolyn. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I don't have, have very a... few symptoms. <laughs> I, do, I don't have a good explanation for what happened. So let's walk back through this. You got vaccinated, and then five days later, you tested positive. Um, that's certainly not from the vaccine. So you're, I would agree with you. You got exposed probably um, just after you got vaccinated. And we know the vaccine takes at least a week to have pretty good immunity, and really optimal immunity is after two weeks since you've had the vaccine. So you got exposed just a it sounds like a couple of days, two or three days after you had the vaccine where you really didn't have any immunity from the vaccine. So I can understand that. Um, what, I'm, what I'm, like you, Carolyn, struggling to understand is why you then were tested negative and then tested positive again. And I don't have a good answer for that. Um, you're right. It's a little, it's stretching the limits of rebound, uh, but rebound certainly has occurred after eight days. It occurs, some of the reports showed that it occurred at eight to 10, sometimes 12 days after you got well, although most of the time rebound occurs much earlier than that after your acute episode. So I don't have a good explanation for why this came back other than rebound. I do have an answer for you, at least with one thing, and that is with the question of contagion or shedding of the virus. There's a very good correlation between a positive test and that you are contagious. That is, you have enough viral particles to spread. So I think anybody who tests positive with the home test has to consider themselves contagious with the virus. The converse, unfortunately, is not true, and that is a negative test does not mean you're not contagious. It gives you pretty good assurance that over the next 8, 10, 12, maybe even 24 hours you're not. But a negative test is it's often negative when you are infected with COVID. So the test is not very sensitive, but very specific. That is, there are very few false positives with this. So I would trust that you did the test correctly and it was positive. I don't think that's a false positive. So you have, an, you have something that I can't really completely explain to you, but I'm just glad you're well. Also sounds like Carolyn was taking uh, all the appropriate precautions to protect her, her friends who were coming to town for a visit. Yeah, I had that same impression. Uh, Carolyn is very responsible. Uh, 1-800-958-9008 to send in a corona call to Dr. Swartzberg. I'll take the next one from the inbox. This comes from Jane in Santa Rosa, who who wants to know, uh, now that she's teeing up her fall booster, is there any evidence that one brand is more protective than the others for my age group? Jane says she's 78. And is there any advantage to uh, mixing up the brands you've had 
over the course of the COVID vaccine era? We don't have any good science to answer that. The latter question, that is, is there any evidence that mixing of the brands is better for you? Um, there was a lot of interest in that about year, two years ago, whether mixing Moderna with Pfizer would give you a better response. That's never panned out really clearly that that's, that's an advantage. So I think that the way I look at it is just get what the pharmacy has available to you. The, the other interesting question is, um, but now, I Nova, mean, Dr. Schwartzberg, now Novavax is available, right? Pfizer and Moderna are both kind of showing your immune system basically the same thing. They're, they're encoding the spike protein. Novavax, as I understand it, is taking the whole virus, uh, killing it, and then showing it to your immune system. Uh, presumably, you could get uh, like a broader set of antibodies from that, right? Well, presumably. Uh, I was just going to say about Novavax, it, 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 it's presenting to your body the protein that's very, very similar to what the mRNAs do indirectly. The mRNA vaccines tell your body to produce that protein and your immune system reacts to that protein. So theoretically, it should be, they should be very similar. And when you look at the data now in terms of um, mRNA vaccines versus Novavax, Novavax, there's some subtle differences, but they're not very meaningful, I don't think. And so I think that you should look at all three of those as pretty equivalent right now. We don't have as much data about Novavax as we have about the other two. There's some tantalizing evidence that uh, our data, not really solid yet, that maybe mixing Novavax with the mRNA would give you a little longer immunity. Uh, but um, frankly, um, I sure, you know, Novavax is hard to get right now. I sure wouldn't wait for Novavax um, if, you're, if you're due for a, the new vaccine. All right. Uh, next question from the inbox comes from someone who has not signed their name at the bottom. So uh, I won't recite the one in their email head. Uh, their spouse is 40 years old, is getting over a case of COVID, and they are wondering if there is a, a waiting period in which they can rule out long COVID. For instance, this person asks if there are no health complications within three months of testing positive, are we in the clear? Yes, um, definitely in the clear at three months. It depends how one defines long COVID, of course, but most people who develop long COVID usually develop it within one to two months. And an awful lot of people who get long COVID have symptoms of long COVID following the acute episode. It just is the tail of the acute episode and it just doesn't go away. So the fact is, it sounds like they're both well, so, or, so it sounds like they would be in the group where it could come on a month or two months later. Three months would really be a stretch. So I think that generally speaking, if you're well after your acute episode of COVID, which most people are, the risk of long COVID is markedly reduced. And within a month or two months, if you haven't had it, it's very unlikely you're going to develop it afterwards. Now, everything in biology has is a bell-shaped curve. And when we look at some people with long COVID, we clearly identify some people who develop signs and symptoms of long COVID well after three months, but that's very unusual. There are also people who develop long COVID with no evidence of clinical evidence of having had acute COVID, but they have evidence in their bloodstream that they had had COVID. So 
Again, think of it as a bell-shaped curve, which the vast majority are in the middle, which is what I was describing. And I guess since we don't have like diagnostic biomarkers that say, based on a test, what you have is long COVID, the further you out you are from an infection, the higher the likelihood that a set of symptoms that look like long COVID could just have a completely different cause, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very frustrating um, for people with long COVID because as we were talking about at the beginning of our discussions, we don't even know what causes it and are the multiple things that probably cause it after you have COVID. And we really don't understand what is going on in the person's body that causes it yet. So um, it, we will it's just taking ag an agonizingly long period of time from the, from the perspective of the people with long COVID, but we will get answers to these and then we will have interventions. All right, let's go to the East coast for our next call. Jean is on the line from looks like Finland, New Jersey. Good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, I had a, uh, uh, a Novavax uh, vac uh, vaccine about two weeks ago. And then I read somewhere yesterday that all the mRNA uh, stuff is out of my system, and I have to start with uh, this one first uh, uh, Novavax uh, uh, vaccination, and then two months later I'm supposed to have another one, and then six months later another one to catch up with whatever the Novavax is offering. And I, I had never seen that before and wondered if you might know anything about that. <laughs> Sure. I th it sounds like, Gene, that you have been previously vaccinated with the mRNA vaccines. So you should look at the Novavax vaccine now that's available as just <clears throat> the next step in re-immunizing yourself with the updated vaccine. You don't need further boosters. It, what I think you're referring to is somebody who's never been vaccinated before. And, and never had COVID before. Right. And if Novavax is your first vaccine, then you do need um, the, the boosting dose of that. So I think that you, it sounds like, Gene, you are, <clears throat> having had the mRNA vaccines previously, the Novavax is just like having an mRNA vaccine now. You're then up to date. Does that clear things up for you, Gene? It did. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your call. Uh, I think, unfortunately, that is going to be the last caller we have time for today. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday with us. You're welcome, Brian. Thank you. All right. That does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen and if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.